So we come on to the um, section entitled The Historical Context of the Teaching on Anatta. So this is part of the um, Dhammanupasana, the last um, section of Satipatthana, and this is the uh, reflection investigation of the five, uh, five aggregates, the five khandhas. At the time of the Buddha, a variety of differing views about the nature of the self existed. The Arjivaka teachings, for example, proposed a soul having a particular color and considerable size as the true self. Apparently it was blue, the color of a blue fruit, and it extended up to a height of 500 yojanas. So uh, a yojana is the distance that an ox cart can go in a single day. So that's quite big, <laughs> relatively speaking, and blue. The Jains posited a finite soul, similarly possessed of size and weight. According to them, the soul survived physical death, and in its pure state, it possessed infinite knowledge. The Upanishads proposed an eternal self, Atman, unaffected by the vicissitudes of change. Upanishadic conceptions about such an eternal self ranged from a physical self the size of a thumb, abiding in the heart area and leaving the body during sleep, to an observable, sorry, to an to an unobservable and unknowable self, immaterial, free from death and sorrow beyond any worldly distinction between subject and object. In the Upanishadic analysis of subjective experience, this eternal self, autonomous, permanent and blissful, was taken to be the agent behind all the senses and activities. So the Upanishads uh, uh, have a, a variety of different authors and different origins, and so there's different um, the uh, pictures or different uh, philosophical positions that were described within those those texts are not like a particularly coherent uh, body of, of teachings. They don't all match each other. Uh, but this last particular point where he says uh, in uh, the Upanishadic analysis of um, that kind of eternal self, so it's considered to be uh, the Atman is eternal, autonomous, uh, permanent and blissful. So... When one of the reasons why the Buddha spoke about anicca dukkha, anatta, uh, you know, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, is because it's the direct counterpoint to nicca sukha atta, you know, uh, of uh, of um, nicca, permanent, sukha, uh, blissful, and atta, you know, the, the true uh, independent self. And you also get this uh, phrase, which is quite common in the. Uh, uh, in the Vedic literature and Upanishads, Sat Chitananda, Sat meaning, meaning um, uh, being, uh, Chit meaning um, consciousness, and Ananda meaning bliss, so that the nature of the Atman was considered to be Sat Chitananda, being consciousness bliss. And you, you, there are also um, yogis and teachers and such like called Swami Sat Chitananda. As, you know, that's uh, supposed to be the description of the true self, the Atman. And so, when the Buddha um, speaking about uh, um, the um, the five khandas being anicca dukkha anatta, that's sort of pointing out it's like the the structure of the um, anatta lakana sutta is really uh, around that kind of assumption of like what you really are, or what I really am is nicca sukha atta, and he sort of he starts off in a way with that kind of presumption and say, well, if that was the case. <laughs> then you would be able to say, if your body was the self, then you could say, be like this, don't be like that. And, and, uh, and because the body is not self, you can't, ha you can't tell it to be like this, don't be like that. If your body is sick, you can't say, get well. If your body is old, you can't say, get young. You know? If your body is short, you can't say, get tall. Well, you can, but it won't work. You know? <laughs> Nothing will happen. And so that sense of, uh, of lack of ownership, lack of, of power over the object so that's where the Anathalakana Sutta starts. It's like saying if if uh, body was self, if the feelings were self, perceptions, mental formations were self, you could uh, you then if that's what who and what you really are, you could say be like this, don't be like that. 
and <clears throat> and because they the, you can't have it of the body and feelings and perceptions so they don't follow commands of that nature then it implies that these are are uh, are not who and what we are and then uh, and then he he deepens the analysis in the anatalakana sutta um, by then saying uh, <clears throat> is the body permanent or impermanent? Uh, and ni changwa, Is it is it permanent or impermanent? Does it does the body change? Well, yes, it does all the time. So, uh, is that which changes is that um, satisfactory or unsatisfactory? Does that lead to affliction or not? Well, uh, either it's it's un, uh, unpleasant and afflicted in, in the moment uh, in the present moment, or if it's pleasant now, it'll change to something unpleasant in the future. So it's uh, it's uh, the body uh, is dukkha, uh, unsatisfactory, and then he says, if that which is impermanent and is it uh, worthy of something which is impermanent and unsatisfactory to say, this is me, this is what I am, this is myself, etang mama eso hamasmi eso me ata, this is mine, this etang mama, this is mine, eso hamasmi this I am, eso me ata, this is myself, my ata. And they say, no, hey, Tang Bante. No, that's not the case, Bante. The, <clears throat> the materialistic schools, on the other hand, rejected all immaterial conceptions of a self or soul. In order to account for causality, they proposed a theory based on the inherent nature, Svabhava, of material phenomena. According to them, a human individual was just an automaton like a robot or an automatically uh, functioning uh, entity, an automaton functioning according to the dictates of matter. From their perspective, human effort was of no avail and there was no such thing as ethical responsibility. And uh, in the uh, uh, additional comment on that, he says, a typical example of this is the position taken by Ajita Kesakambali, that's, uh, he's mentioned in the Diga Nikaya in the um, Samanya Pala Sutta, second discourse in the Diga. Ajita Kesakambali, uh, his position that there are no such things as good and evil deeds, since a human being is nothing more than a combination of the four elements. Along similar lines, Pakuda Kachayana, in the same discourse, numbers, uh, number two, second discourse of the Diga Nikaya, Pakuda Kachayana proposed human beings to be made up of seven immutable principles, which led him to the conclusion that even cutting off someone's head with a sword should not be considered killing, but should be reckoned only as inserting the blade in the space intervening between these seven principles. Well, it's all empty, and then you know there's a great there's great spaces between <laughs> atoms and and, yeah, and different molecules, and within the the atoms between the electrons and neutrons and protons, it's all space really. Just let the blade pass through the spaces. And it's a space passing through space really, and not on the uh, and from the perspective of the the decapitee, the one who's having their head cut off. Um, but that was uh, the kind of principle that was proposed by uh, Pakuda Kachayana. In this context, the Buddha's position cuts a middle path between the belief in an eternal soul and the denial of anything beyond mere matter. By affirming karmic consequences and ethical responsibility, the Buddha clearly opposed the teachings of the materialists. So against that, the, the, the latter a group of just saying it's the, the human being is just the, the four elements and nothing else. At the, same, at the same time, he was able to explain the operation of karmic retribution over several lifetimes with the help of dependent co-arising, Paticca Samupada, and thereby without bringing in a substantial and unchanging essence. So that then the... Um, Rather than the eternalist um, view of there is this immutable self which goes and <coughs> inhabits one body after another, um, rather he spoke in terms of uh, dependent origination and causality, a sort of chain of, of causation. Uh, and there's a particular sutta where um, he's explaining this and he says, uh, 
you know, are you the same uh, as you were when you were one year old? And the person says, well, I'm neither the same, neither completely the same nor, nor completely different. And the Buddha said, exactly. <laughs> so from uh, one lifetime to another, um, it, it works in the same way, that, you, it, that there is a connection, there's a relatedness, there's a causal connection between one life and one set of events and another, but you can't say that it's the same person, just like you know, when you were a one-year-old baby and how you are now as an adult, there's a connection, but you can't say that the two are, are the same. But you couldn't get the adult without having the baby, but the baby is you know, a fraction of the size of the adult, and there are many, many differences, but there's a causal uh, relationship uh, that led from the one to the other, and then the way that the, the latter being is shaped is... Uh, is uh, formed around the experiences and, and the, the uh, con uh, conditioning and perceptions of the of the, um, the 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 child he pointed out that the five aggregates which together account for subjective experience on closer investigation turn out to be impermanent and not amenable to complete personal control as we know therefore a permanent and self-sufficient self cannot be found within or apart from the five aggregates. In this way, the Buddha's teaching of anatta denied a permanent and inherently independent self and at the same time affirmed empirical continuity and ethical responsibility. So that was a, a, not a, 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 an easy path to tread, but it was both recognizing the, um, the qualities of, of uh, anatta, of no permanent individual independent atta, atman, uh, but yet the, the sense of how, uh, of, co of how causality works in nature, in the, the laws of cause and effect uh, function, and then have this ethical element whereby um, if there is a, 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 an unwholesome intention behind an act, it'll, it will bring forth a painful and afflictive um, result. And if there's a wholesome uh, intention behind a, an act, then it will, uh, in in various ways, it'll bring forth a, a beneficial or pleasant uh, result. Also, I was going to um, uh, the end of the last reading. I mentioned this um, uh, passage by David Hume from his treatise on human nature, so uh, it's relevant at this point. So this is David Hume, British philosopher, who wrote. Uh, in 1738. There are some philosophers who imagine we are every moment intimately conscious of what we call ourself. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception, and never can observe anything but the perception. When my perceptions are removed for any time, as by sound sleep, so long as I am insensible of myself, and may truly be said not to exist, I may venture to affirm of the rest of mankind that they are nothing but a bundle or a collection of different perceptions, which succeed each other with inconceivable rapidity, and are in a perpetual flux and movement. If you can follow that. <laughs> so, <clears throat> when my perceptions are removed, as my sound sleep, um, uh, so long I am, uh, as I am insensible to myself, I may be truly said not to exist. Like, so if I'm, if I'm unconscious, I, I don't really exist. Uh, and so that he had this uh, this insight, whatever it was based on his own observations or whether he was um, uh, had access to Buddhist teachings is another story. But uh, that um, uh, it's the same kind of uh, observation. When you look for this real I, me and mine, you you, you can't find anything there. And that um, that's is the uh, approach that the the Buddha took when he said, well, rather than assuming there is an I, start from the other end. Say, well. Uh, <clears throat> Let's look at the things that you think of as being I and me and mine, and then see what happens when you, you let go. So rather than taking an idea of the true self or the real me or the, the, the ultimate I, uh, 
and trying to sort of say that's what I and having a belief that's what I really am he started at the other end and then said okay well let's take the things that we usually think that we are the body our feelings our, our memories our age our gender our nationality our name our personal stories um, take those things that we usually think that that we are and question that and then so rather than trying to affirm this sort of metaphysical uh, eye that you can't really find to, and sort of create a model of that and trying to, to be that or embody that or, or actualize that. Instead, uh, just let go of what you're not and then what remains will be the reality. That's uh, the, uh, the, the method that the Buddha chose. So rather than talking about a real self or a true self or an ultimate self, he, he realized any way of talking about a self or, or being something led into, fed into the uh, kind of conceit, uh, manyati, the conceiving of an I. And so he, he approached it from a, what they, in the Christian tradition they call a via negativa, a way of negation. So it's just, just stop identifying with what you're not and what will remain, what will remain is the reality. So when you, when the, the mind lets go of, identification with the body, with the personality, with I and me and mine, then what remains is the, the Dhamma, the, the reality of things. But then if the mind says, oh, that's what I, that's what I am, I'm the Dhamma, that's me, that's the real me, then that's just another thought. Right? <laughs> I've discovered the true me. Any particular questions? Ajahn Jitapada, go ahead. Mm -hmm. When I was giving the talk two days ago, I was kind of stumbling uh, on, on those sand, you know. Uh, so when, when my brother died, and I was kind of thinking, where's consciousness gone? And the body is obviously there and forming a part, but where's consciousness gone? And um, Consciousness is depending on sankaras. I've no clue whether there, there are any sankaras left for somebody who, you know, was very two days dead. Sometimes they say it, it takes a while. Um, whether there, there are. Uh, Anyway, when, when I was looking at the suttas, Buddha does speak of, of the being, you know, that being is then moving on. And the Gandaba. Yeah, and, and lo looking for... A place to be reborn. Yeah, yeah. So, so there must be some kind of part of, of consciousness is, is also volition, the, the movement of, mm -hmm. of will. Um, so there must be some kind of, but the Buddha didn't, did never spoke, speak about it more in detail. He does a bit. He says when, when Vajragotta asks him, um, uh, when one life comes to an end and another life begins, then what is it that sustains a being from between one life and the next? And the Buddha uses this image of when there's a forest fire and the, the flames leap from one tree to another, between the, the, the trees the flames are sustained by the air. Um, and so he says, between lifetimes, the the tanupadana, uh, so craving is the fuel, and so that that sustains a being. So so you can say force of habit or attachment, clinging, that the degree to which you think you're German or you think you're a woman or you think you're a, a nun or a Buddhist or you're a good person or a bad person, all of those I am's. So there's this wonderful um, little book called The Mountains of Tibet that uh, I often recommend in this respect. Um, it's a it's a, a children's book, but it's about it's about uh, rebirth, and it starts off with like once upon a time there was a little boy called Tenzin, and he liked he lived in the Tibetan mountains, and he liked in the mountains of Tibet, and he liked to fly his kite. There's little Tenzin, and then so sort of turn over the page, and Tenzin grew up and died. <laughs> right, so he's kind of the hero is dead by page five. Right? Oh, that's interesting, like that like that movie Up, where you have the. The, uh, the the couple uh, you know the guys died on the uh, or the wife has died by the, by the in the first five minutes of the movie so ten you know, Tenzin dies 
and then it describes a sequence so then you can see the sort of consciousness leaving the body and then has this experience of enormous spaciousness and this this voice coming from inside or from outside you can't really tell says so you have a choice you can either uh, uh, dissolve into the um, yeah, infinite light of, of uh, Dharma or you can um, reappear somewhere. What would you like to do? Ooh, oh, well, i kind of like to reappear somewhere. And then there's the galaxy. And, okay, where would you like to, any particular spot? Well, kind of about there, about sort of three quarters of the way out on that spiral arm. That looks kind of nice. Oh, there's this big burning ball of gas and these little kind of lumps little marbles rolling around oh or any of these you particularly fancy or oh, that third one out this little greeny blue one that looks kind of interesting and goes on and so oh there's many different uh, many different parts there's these kind of sandy ones and these green ones and these cold ones and these warm ones and these busy ones and quiet ones any particular land that looks interesting well that one with the pointy white things you know, with the 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 um with those kind of uh, uh, steep, steep mountains and those deep valleys, that looks kind of nice. Um, and uh, we said, well, you can. There's all kinds of animals that you could, uh, or different creatures in uh, in the world, and and uh, uh, you know, what, what do you fancy? And said, well, those ones with the two legs, they look kind of interesting, and they got all sorts of colourful outfits that they wear. That looks kind of nice, and then. Turn over the page, and says, "Little Dolma was a girl born in the mountains of Tibet, and she liked to fly her kite." You know? <laughs> so it's like the, that's what you uh, get. It's just like, what do you like for breakfast? You know, when you wake up in the morning, it's like you know, you know what you like. You don't suddenly, um, if you if you've had toast and peanut butter for breakfast every day for for twenty five years, you don't suddenly think banana smoothie. Or porridge, you know. So, like, well, no, that's what you, you, you don't. You just don't suddenly start speaking French or German or English if your language is Thai or Sinhalese or, or Chinese. You know, it's just we go to the things that are familiar, the name, the story, the moods that, that uh, and the degree to which the mind says that's me. I am a woman. I am a man. I am a Theravadan. I am a human. That then, then that's the that's that's the tanhupadana that, but the that's the the knot of, of I and me and my habits, that causes the rebirth and so enlightenment is recognizing, well there's, humanness but that's not what's that got to do with anything real, <laughs> there's there's this sort of, uh, Englishness well, that's a joke, you know. Uh, and that can see through the the um, love and hate, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, and the, the patterns of, of identity. Sees those. Well, these are just um, you know, patterns of experience. There isn't really any solid I or me or mine uh, in that. So to carry on, the next section is called empirical self and contemplation of the aggregates. Not only does the Buddha's penetrating analysis of self provide a philosophical refutation of theories proposing a substantial and unchanging self, it also has an intriguing psychological relevance. Self, quote-unquote, as an independent and permanent entity is related to notions of mastery and control. Uh, Saying in the Anathalakana Sutta, you, you, it, can it be? Uh, you cannot be said of the body. Be like this. Don't be like that. You know, the, the, the body won't uh, obey. <clears throat> and so that's also a modern psychological interpretation of self or de definition of ego. It's like that which is in control. It's like there's a sense of mastery and, and choice. Such no such notions of mastery, permanence, and inherent satisfactoriness to some degree parallel the concepts of narcissism and the ideal ego in modern psychology. These concepts do not refer to articulate philosophical beliefs or ideas, but to unconscious assumptions, implicit in one's way of perceiving and reacting to experience. Such assumptions are based on an inflated sense of self-importance, on a sense of self that continuously demands to be gratified and protected against external threats to its omnipotence. 
So <clears throat> why is the world treating me like this? That's not fair. It's like, well, no, they, that, that, they shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's not right. That uh, all of that is coming from the, you know, if I was in charge, if I was in charge, <laughs> nobody asked me. Uh, that sense of your omnipotence is being offended because the world has gone in a way that you don't like, or you don't approve, or you, you don't approve of, or you didn't expect. Everything that says it shouldn't be this way is uh, based on the uh, uh, that soft, subtle, of course, uh, sense of, of atta, of self. Contemplating anatta helps to expose these assumptions as mere projections. The anatta perspective can show up a broad range of manifestations of such a sense of self. According to the standard instructions for contemplating anatta, each of the five aggregates should be considered devoid of mine, I am, and myself. That's etang mama. Uh, the, the Pali word for mine is mama. So the primordial owning is the baby for the mother. Mama, mama, mama. Mine. <laughs> Protection, food, comfort. Mine. Mama. Etang mama. Eso hamasmi, I am, and uh, uh, myself, eso me ata. This analytical approach covers not only the last mentioned view of a self, but also the mode of craving and attachment underlying the attribution of mine to phenomena and the sense of I am as a manifestation of conceit and grasping. So these are called the... Um, the uh, uh, papancha, uh, the papancha dhammas, uh, craving, conceit, and views, because um, the, uh, they they lead to the sort of proliferation of of I and me and mine. So the craving, mine, conceit, I am, and and views, atta, this is myself. So craving, conceit, and views, tanha, diti, and mana, uh, as sort of the the ways that those are are, are sort of highlighted. And they're called the, the Papancha uh, Dhammas. A clear understanding of the range of each aggregate forms the necessary basis for this investigation. Such a clear understanding can be gained through Satipatthana contemplation. In this way, contemplation of the five aggregates commends itself for uncovering various patterns of identification and attachment to a sense of self. A practical approach to this is to keep inquiring into the notion of I am or mine that lurks behind experience and activity. Once this notion of an agent or owner behind experience has been clearly recognized, the above non-identification strategy can be implemented by considering each aggregate as not mine, not I, not myself. That sounds a little bit technical, but it's a, a kind of practice um, very common in, in our tradition, and, and one that uh, Lumpur Sumedha used a lot when he first uh, was um, a monk in Thailand. So if you're sweeping the path, you ask yourself, who's sweeping? If you're walking um, across the, the sala, who's walking? If you're, if you're seeing a tree, who is seeing? Uh, if you are um, feeling happy, or who's happy? Uh, if you're feeling um, miserable, you know, who's miserable? Who does this state belong to? Is does this does this feeling of the weight of the body? Does this feeling have an owner? Does that sound belong to to someone? Uh, what is the 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 owner of the mood? Whatever um, kind of angle of approach uh, is uh, effective, it's that kind of inquiry. So there's a challenging of those assumptions of. I am the body, I am these feelings, I am these perceptions, uh, I am these memories, I am this, this story, this is me, this is what I am, these are, uh, th there's, a, there's a me who's the owner of these perceptions, there's a me who is sick, there's a me who is recovering, there's a me who is happy, there's a me who's unhappy, there's a me who's um, got some kind of advantage, a me who's got some kind of disadvantage. And so that, uh, it's not quite as technical as, he's, as he um, is describing, but rather... It's like it's almost like an ongoing mindfulness practice, and so that uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often say that the first couple of years he was at Wat, uh, Wat Bapong as a monk, then he would uh, just use this all the time. He used this inquiry into into you know who is doing this, who is walking, who's feeling, who's experiencing, 
Um, who's inspired? Who's not inspired? <laughs> who, who, is there a person that this inspired feeling belongs to? You know, wh where, where is it? What, what shape is that thing that owns this inspired feeling uh, or this depressed feeling? You know, uh, is it an I? Is it a me? What, what is that? And so that the the use or the purpose of those kind of questions is not trying to find some kind of perfect uh, conceptual answer, but rather it's a it's like a pin to puncture the bubble of oh I'm walking I'm feeling I'm happy I'm I'm a success I'm a failure uh, uh, I'm I'm sick I'm healthy it's, it's to just burst that bubble of of conceit uh, I making and mind making and then. Uh, when that bubble bursts, and that, that oh well, there's the experience of seeing and feeling. There's a, there's the experience of heat or cold or comfort or discomfort, but calling it I and me and mine is extra. Ah, so the point of the whole practice is that ah, when that conceit is is dissolved, and even if that's just for half a second, just for a moment, it uh, it um, say changes the perspective. So if you're worried about your parents or your children or you're, um, or you're um, excited about your meditation or you're um, uh, feeling hungry or you're feeling tired, whatever it might be, sort of personal, non-personal, to do with the weather, to do with your personal story, that, whatever it might be, it's the looking at that sense of, uh, you know, I am worried about my parents, I've got responsibilities, so I'm, uh, <coughs> I'm uh, happy to have... Uh, Time by myself, or I'm uh, uh, I'm not being treated fairly. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> the object is immaterial. And it's like, well, who is the one who's responsible? You know, who is the one who's who's being treated unfairly? You know, who's the one who's having a great time? What is that? And that it's that turn in a way, turning the camera back onto the photographer. Oh, <laughs> to to catch that. Um, that set of assumptions, and then just like David Hume, when I look for myself, I, you know, I can't find any real. When I call myself, I can't really find any self there. You, you can only see the perceptions. So the Buddha had a very phenomenological approach. It's like just relating to the phenomena of experiencing, perceiving. Well, there's hearing, there's feeling, there's remembering, but you can't say it's an I or a me or a mine. You can't say there is an owner. So, in a way, the Buddha was the the first phenomenologist, and and also when he uh, uh, when he talked about the world, he said, "What is the world? The eye is the world. Visual objects are the world. The ear is the world. And sound is the world. Uh, taste, smell, touch. You know, this is the world. And the body is the world. The mind is the world. This is what we call the world in this dhamma and discipline." In this way, contemplation of the five aggregates as a practical application of the anatta strategy can uncover the representational aspects of one's sense of self. Those aspects responsible for the formation of a self-image. I'm tall, I'm short, I'm attractive, I'm unattractive. I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm old, I'm young, I'm a monk, I'm a layperson. Practically applied in this way, Contemplation of anatta can expose the various types of self-image responsible for identifying with and clinging to one's social position, professional occupation. I'm a monk. I'm an ex-monk. You know, I'm a doctor. You know, I'm, a, I'm a failed student. <coughs> I, well, one friend of ours used to introduce himself, I'm a failed Buddhist. <laughs> so the, the British in particular are inclined to self-denigration. Uh, self is very proud of being a failed Buddhist. <laughs> it's in a kind of perverse way. So attachment to so social position, you know, can be attachment to being a failure and to having um, missed out in life. That can be as much of an attachment to being someone who's a professor or a Nobel Prize winner or something. A published author and such. So various types of Self-image responsible for identifying with and clinging to one's social position, professional occupation, or personal possessions. Trying to make sure that people can see your Rolex watch. And they, they know it's your red Jaguar parked outside the, the, the front of the gate. 
Moreover, anatta can be employed to reveal erroneous superimpositions on experience, particularly the sense of an autonomous and independent subject reaching out to acquire or reject discrete substantial objects. According to the Buddha's penetrative analysis, patterns of identification and attachment to a sense of self can take altogether 20 different forms. By taking any of the five aggregates to be self, self to be in possession of the aggregate, the aggregate to be inside self, or self to be inside the aggregate. So you've got four modes for each of the five aggregates. And a particularly uh, helpful example of that is in the Buddha's teaching to Anuradha, which is um, in the, the um, Sangyuta Nikaya. This is in the Kandavaga, predictably, the um, discourse, uh, these connected discourses about the, uh, the five Khandas. So section 22, sutra number 86 to Anuradha. And um, it starts off with uh, Anuradha coming across a, a group of other wanderers and they ask him the, the standard questions about what does the Buddha say about what happens to an enlightened being after death. And uh, they ask him, after death a Tathagata is, or after death a Tathagata is not? Or after death a Tathagata both is and is not? Or after death a Tathagata neither is nor is not? And then Anuradha responds, friends, a Tathagata, in describing them, describes them apart from these four instances. And when this was said, they remarked, this must be a new bhikkhu, one not long gone forth, or if he's an elder, he must be foolish and incompetent. <laughs> they always speak very politely. So that uh, they thought he didn't know what he was talking about. So then he goes to the Buddha and, um, and checks on whether he, he spoke correctly or not. And... Um, the Buddha then goes through the analysis of the five khandas and the um, uh, uh, the qualities of Anicca Dukkha Anatta, just as in the Anatta Lakana Sutta. Um, and then he uh, then he follows it up and says, "How do you conceive this Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as in material form, as in the body? No venerable sir. Do you see the Tathagata as apart from material form? No venerable sir." Do you see the Tathagata as in feeling, as apart from feeling, in perception, apart from perception? So um, the first mode is either in or out. And then the, uh, the second one, how do you conceive this Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as being all five khandas together? Material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness? No, Venerable Sir. How do you conceive this Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as that which, which has no material form, no feeling, no perception, no mental formations, no consciousness. So do you see that the Tathagata is apart from the five khandas? So uh, these different modes, these sort of four different modes, as, as in the five khandas, as uh, apart from them, as being them all together or not being associated with them. And then he says, um, Anuradha, when a Tathagata is here and now unapprehendable by you as true and established, um, is it fitting to say of him, friends, when I was a Tathagata, uh, 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 one who is a Tathagata, highest of beings, the supreme among beings, one attained to the supreme attainment. When a Tathagata is describing them, he describes them apart from the following four instances. After death, a Tathagata is, or after death, a Tathagata is not, or after death, a Tathagata both is and is not, or after death, a Tathagata neither is nor is not. No, Venerable Sir. Good, good, Anuradha. What I describe now, as formerly, is Dukkha and the ending of Dukkha. So any way of, of a defining a, a being, um, even by the, the, with Anuradha saying that... Um, those four modes that you guys mentioned, that the, the, the Buddha describes the, the nature of a Tathagata after death as something other than that, the Buddha is saying, even that is too much. Even that is, is kind of implying that there is a, a being that's kind of 
going off some other place that you just haven't named yet. So he said, even that's even that's saying too much. Just focus your attention on dukkha and the ending of dukkha. So that um, this is in the the islands uh, and this uh, and this uh, chapter called the unapprehendability of the enlightened, and it's uh, uh, you know helpful helpful set of teachings where the the Buddha is um, pointing to the way that the mind is always trying to create a sense of I and me and mine and and um, how. Uh, any kind of conceiving of, a, of an eye is going to be wide of the mark. And so that that uh, what's described in the Anattalakana Sutra is a way of going through the categories of body and mind and and um, so in a way developing that, that attitude of non-entanglement, non, non-ownership. So by taking any of the five aggregates to be self, <coughs> the self to be in possession of the aggregate, the aggregate to be inside the self or the self to be inside the aggregate. The teaching on anatta aims to completely remove all these identifications with and the corresponding attachments to a sense of self. Such removal proceeds in stages. With the realization of stream entry, any notion of a permanent self, sakayaditi, is eradicated, whilst the subtlest traces of attachment to oneself are removed only with full awakening. So there's a, a an interesting sutta um, to that's in uh, in the um, same section, um, the Kandavaga of the Sangyuta Nikaya. Uh, a monk called Kemaka, um, when he's asked, he's very old and ill, and his his uh, companions, his monk companions, say, "Well, have you reached Arahantship yet?" And, and uh, he says, "No, I haven't." And anyway, that. It's a long story, but they, they, uh, he eventually goes to visit them and they have this dialogue. And he says, even though when I look at the five khandhas, uh, I can't see that any sense of self associated with the five, any of the five khandhas, yet still this feeling of I hovers around. He says, it's like a flower. You, you, can, you can smell the fragrance of the flower, but you can't tell whether the fragrance comes from the petals or from the stamens or from the leaves or... Or where it's coming from, but you can smell it, but you can't pin down where where it is. Or there's no particular thing that, that seems to have the the scent. And uh, <clears throat> and so he said, in that same way, there's no attachment to the five khandhas, but this feeling of I am still persists. And so what that's uh, that's that more subtle kind of I am is what's called asmimana. So sakaya ditti self view is let go of at stream entry. Which is the first level of enlightenment, but the asmimana is only uh, is only let go of uh, that subtle kind of conceit is only let go of an arahantship. And uh, Venerable Kamaka is notable uh, in this respect as he actually became an arahant whilst hearing his own dhamma talk. <laughs> so as he was explaining that to his friends, he became an arahant. So you can become an arahant listening to your own dhamma talk. <laughs> the Venerable Kamaka um, proved that. So asmi means I am, mana means conceit. So asmi mana, literally the conceit of I am. So that can still be there, even if there's a clear, clear recognition. I'm not the body. I'm not the personality. You know, there's no feeling or a sense of I around any particular aspect. But that, uh, in a way, is identification with the with the the quality of knowing or awareness. That there seems to be a a a, a center of of ex, of experiencing. That that kind of knot of of uh, of knowing that, and as Ajahn Mahabur put it, um, if there is a if there is uh, a center or a, a point to the 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 quality of knowing, that is the essence of birth in some state of being. The teaching of anatta, however, is not directed against what are merely the functional aspects of personal existence but aims only at the sense of I am that commonly arises in relation to it. Otherwise, an arahant would simply be unable to function in any way. So uh, it's the arahantship is to do with letting go of that I am feeling. It doesn't mean that uh, an you know, arahant will become kind of incapable or, or couldn't make choices or couldn't function in the world. 
So it doesn't mean that enlightenment leads to catatonia or being paralyzed or turning into a zombie, which some of the commentaries give that kind of impression. That, but um, you know, the, as he says, uh, this of course is not the case, as the Buddha and his Arahant disciples were still able to function coherently. In fact, they were able to do so with more competence than before their awakening, since they had completely overcome and eradicated all mental defilements, and thereby all obstructions to proper, proper mental functioning. A well-known simile of relevance in this context is that of a chariot, which does not exist as a substantial thing apart from, or in addition to, its various parts. Just as the term chariot, quote-unquote, is simply a convention, so the superimposition of I-identifications on experience are nothing but conventions. On the other hand, to reject the existence of an independent substantial chariot does not mean that it's impossible to ride in the conditioned and impermanent functional assemblage of parts to which the concept chariot refers. Similarly, to deny the existence of a self does not imply a denial of the conditioned and impermanent interaction of the five aggregates. That's a very a very well-phrased passage there by Venerable Analio, and it represents exactly what you have in the in the teachings and uh, the um, there's a uh, in the uh, Mara Sangita in the Sangita Nikaya there's a, a collection of teachings or dialogues between Mara and a number of bhikkhunis who he was trying to to trick and fool and confuse and he fails repeatedly and one of them uh, uh, the nun Vajira uh, in, is in this passage it's uh, Sutta number ten in the uh, Amara Sangita. It's the fifth section of the of the um, connected discourses. So Amara comes to visit the nun Vajira and tries to throw her off her path of spiritual practice by introducing doubts into her mind. By whom has this been created? Where is the maker of this being? From whence has this being arisen? Where will this being cease? Then the bhikkhuni Vajira, having understood this is Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verses, Why do you presume a being is here? Mara, is that your real view? This is just a heap of forms. No being can be apprehended. Just as, with all parts assembled, the name of chariot can be used. So, while the candors keep on going, the convention of a being pertains. What comes to be is only dukkha. Only dukkha remains and falls away. Nothing but dukkha comes to be, nothing but dukkha fades away. Another instance showing the need to distinguish between emptiness and mere nothingness in the sense of annihilation occurs in a discourse from the Abhyakata Sangyutta. Here the Buddha, on being directly questioned concerning the existence of a self, Atta, refused to give either an affirmative or a negative answer. So this was, again was Vachagota. It came to, it's the only time when the, the Buddha was asked, you know, does the self exist? So Vachagota came to the Buddha and said, does the self exist? And the Buddha remained silent. And then he asked, does the self not exist? And the Buddha remained silent, so then Vajagoda bowed three times and departed. Uh, and then, uh, uh, as he goes on to say, according to his own explanation later on, if he had simply denied, if the Buddha had simply denied the existence of a self, it might have been mis misunderstood as a form of annihilationism, a position he was always careful to avoid. Such a misunderstanding can, in fact, have dire consequences since to mistakenly believe that anatta implies there to be nothing at all can lead to wrongly assuming that consequently there is no karmic responsibility. <coughs> so that, uh, and so in that, that dialogue with Vachagota, then um, Ananda, who's always trying to sort of make everything all right and keep everybody happy, um, comes up to the Buddha afterwards and says, well, Venerable Sir, you know, in, well, far be it from me to correct your teachings, Venerable Sir, but you know, 
why was it that you didn't answer him? Because um, surely it would have been better to give him some kind of explanation. And then the Buddha said, so Ananda, if I had said to him, yes, the self exists, uh, would that be in accord with my teaching that all Dhammas are not self? No, Venerable Sir. And if I had uh, said to him that no self exists, um, then he would have come here as, uh, under the assumption that uh, he had a self, and then he would then believe, oh, well, when I came here I had a self, but then now the Master tells me I haven't got one. And so he would have gone away even more confused than when he arrived. So so remaining silent was the appropriate response to Vajragata in this instance. It's also notable that um, uh, in, uh, in, in the forest tradition, also in other Buddhist traditions where they, they teach a lot about emptiness, um, then or, or that uh, the teaching on this this uh, uh, level of a very uh, more refined wisdom that that it's almost always counterbalanced with a strong emphasis on on the karma and so uh, my interactions with the um, people in the, the Dzogchen tradition the Tsogni Rinpoche saying that uh, you the the teachings very much revolve around a, a refined quality of wisdom. But you have to have like 20 years of training with a, with a teacher. And the, and the key thing is that as long as the teacher doesn't feel that the student understands how karma and, and, uh, and selflessness work together, then they won't give them the, the, the Dzogchen teachings. But they, they've got to be able to understand how yeah, everything is empty, but there is causality. And that uh, the one, the insight into emptiness and, and the not-self does not negate the significance and importance of causality and karmic responsibility and such like. So those two have to go together because you get this um, this kind of annihilationism or nihilism whereby, uh, well, everything is empty, so there's nobody here to cause uh, any trouble. Uh, but uh, it's also interesting how civil law, uh, the way that, uh, that human ordinary human societies function also, uh, doesn't acknowledge that kind of wisdom that says, you know, if you get pulled over for speeding and you say, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, the, the policeman says, you know, you're going 95 miles an hour. I said, well, there's no one who's going 95 miles an hour. No, it's merely a perception officer that will get you a trip to the police station. <laughs> Probably a large ticket, if not more. So, in fact, although the scheme of the five aggregates opposes the notion of a self, and therefore appears essentially negative in character. It also has the positive function of defining the components of subjective empirical existence. As a description of empirical personality, the five aggregates thus point to those central aspects of personal experience that need to be understood in order to progress towards realization. So, perceptions, Thoughts, moods, emotions, consciousness. So that it's saying, uh, you know, the body. It's like it's defining the different areas of experience and what makes us makes us a sort of a person. But so that by looking at that, understanding that, and exploring the uh, experience just in terms of, of that particular patterning, that helps to um, sort of support the whole process of, of realization. So it's. Uh, that um, it, and it's also defining what we think that we are, and by helping it to be clarified what we think we are, it also supports the realization that that's what we're not. A breakdown into all five aggregates might not be a matter of absolute necessity, since <coughs> some passages document less detailed analytical approaches to insight. According to the Mahasakuludai Sutta, for example, the simple distinction between body and consciousness constituted a sufficient degree of analysis for several disciples of the Buddha to gain realization. That's in the Majjhima Nikaya. And it says, in this passage, consciousness acts as a representative of mind in its entirety. So it's just saying the body and consciousness as a sort of way of representing uh, both body and mind in a shorthand way. Even so, most discourses operate with a more usual analysis of the mental side of experience into the four aggregates. So, uh, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, the four nama khandas. That's the more common pattern. And this more detailed analysis might be due to the fact 
that it's considerably more difficult to realize the impersonal nature of the mind than of the body. Which is a, a good point. So more detailed analysis of the mind because it's easier to get deluded into identifying different aspects of the mental realm rather than the physical. Compared with the previous Satipatthana contemplations of similar phenomena such as body, feelings and mind, contemplation of the aggregates stands out for its additional emphasis on exposing identification patterns. Once these patterns of identification are seen for what they really are, the natural result will be disenchantment and detachment in regard to these five aspects of subjective experience. A key aspect for understanding the true nature of the aggregates, and thereby of oneself, is awareness of their impermanent and conditioned nature. That's leading on to the, the next section there. So that um, uh, that uh, point that he's making there is is to say, okay, well, th this is the the um, uh, this is the body. There's this feeling of I. There's this feeling of oh, I am a I'm a man, or I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm English, or I'm uh, a, a monk. And oh, that that designation monk is just a, a changing perception, or the designation of man, or the, this, or the perceiving of of heat or cold. Uh, it's just a perception. So that that recognition. Oh, this is just a perception. This is just a feeling. Well, that's just the mind saying, "I am a man," or "Today is Thursday." Oh, it's just a perception. It's just a convention. It's that uh, that kind of uh, contemplation of the aggregates. It's, it points out, oh, that's just an identification. I, 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 I like to think in that way because this is the language I use or this is habitual judgment. Oh, that's all it is. So you, it, uh, it helps to, uh, for those identification patterns to be illuminated and then through them being illuminated, oh, that's that, the, the wisdom, that, oh, that's no thing really there. This is just a, a human agreement, a... a, a um, a kind of convenient fiction, as I like to put it. That's all. Ah. And again, the, the whole point of that kind of contemplation is that ah, it's that change of heart that happens when we see, oh, there really isn't any such thing as Englishness that's, that's solid and permanent and, and who and what I am. Ah. And uh, so then the, you're not defying the condition or, or the convention, you're not negating it, but they're simply uh, non, not being limited uh, by that and not being identified with it. Any questions? It's, yes, HK. Uh, like, uh, sometimes, like, anatta uh, seems to be kind of uh, too much for me, like, very, very radical for me. Like, when I challenge the sense of uh, myself in terms of like attachments or memories or like clinging or whatever. Uh, when I challenge it by by thinking that this is not you, this is not yours, this is not who you are. Mm -hmm. By uh, when I challenge myself, I sometimes I experience this like a power cut. Yeah, that didn't happen. No, there's something really important over there. Quick, go, yeah. get out of here. That kind of thing. Sometimes, like, yeah. uh, like, a, like, what's going on? It's kind of a, like a no gravity feeling. Hmm. It's like a, it's sometimes it feels like a like everything just tasteless or like a boredom or like a spaced out sometimes like. A, like, what am I? What's going on? Just sometimes very intense. Mm -hmm. So I, so sometimes uh, kind of very scary, or sometimes like fatigue, or like boredom, mm -hmm. or just tiredness. Just, just. Well, the, the the ego doesn't like to lose its job. It's like when someone's been the the head of state for a long time. They, they're not looking forward to the election. <laughs> or they've been a managing director, or head of the family for a long time. They don't like to be deposed. And so that um, 
that kind of switching off, numbing out, or like I was describing, looking for some kind of really interesting thing over there. You know, that's all this kind of self, self, the 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 wrong kind of self-preservation, and uh, it's a um, that's a a lot of the dynamic that you have played out between the Buddha and Mara is that uh, in that the um, like Mara coming up to Sister Vajira, you know the, the Arahan nun saying, I don't know, uh, "Where do you come from? Where, what, what's this? What's this life all about? Or where is where does this being go?" And and it's a, um, a representation of that scrambling tendency, wanting to interrupt the insight or something to to deflate it or deflect it. And that, you didn't really see that. That didn't really happen quick. You have to go and eat something. Uh, or go and talk to someone, or there's a there's a problem that you haven't been thinking about. What's that problem? Oh yeah, and that's like I was saying the other day about how when when you it's very interesting. And I think I was saying it in this group uh, when you you carry out some kind of a task and you're busy with something, and then you come to the end of it and you you sit down and you go, ah, thank goodness that's over, and then. You sit down, and then for a moment, there's this sort of feeling of relief for like three or four seconds, and then you start to feel uncomfortable because there's no thing to be doing that you are you you the thing that you were identified with, like cleaning that space or helping that with that job. You're not that that cleaner or that doer or that fixer. So then the mind starts to hunt for something to to be responsible for to get involved in. Because undefined being is death, and so the mind hunts for for another responsibility or another activity or something to worry about, and then or a problem, anything, a project, a problem, you know, a, uh, anything will do. And it's very interesting because it'll latch onto a problem, which is an extra responsibility or a death or a, a thing to feel bad about, and along with that that sense of Oh dear, yes, there's that. There's the thought, yes! <laughs> I've got a legal, <laughs> yeah, a legal thing to be identified. There's a me that's existing in relationship to a that. That's an, and, and then the more unfixable it is, the better. Like an unrequitable romance or a, a, a hurt, you know, the, an un, unfixable break, breakage, something that you, you, Someone you hurt, or something that you you broke, and it can't be fixed. Perfect, because you, you know, it's it uh, it's always going to be there. It can't be fixed. So there's always a me who should have done better, or should have done different, or me who can't fix that that problem. And so that uh, you know, for all of us, it, these things work in different ways. But it's that's exactly the the kind of dynamic of the uh, the. Uh, ego, the sense of self, like Sakaya Ditti, looking for uh, fuel to keep going, looking for some, for uh, a, a kind of motivating force. And so the, the development of insight, part of the, the heart is liberated. Ah, thank goodness. But the ego says, no! <laughs> and is looking for some kind of good reason to get out of here. That's why people run away from monastery. Often they, they have a really powerful insight, and then they run away. Because the ego says, oh, let's get out of here, this is getting dangerous, you know, I'm going to lose my job. You know. And so, often for completely non-rational reasons, somebody finds themselves just racing out the gate, and all they leave behind is this, the smell of burnt rubber. <laughs> behind their training shoes. <laughs> that, uh, so that... Um, bringing the attention to that um, that dynamic and just saying, look at that, I'm trying to switch off or just, wow, I went completely numb there. There was one really interesting friend of ours in, in California who he had, had no real connection with the spiritual spiritual practice at all. And he was in the gay community and he was an event manager and he used to set up these big exhibitions and was in this kind of colorful and um, busy world. And a friend of his said, um, oh, "I've got this really interesting documentary about this monastery in Thailand. You know, you, I'm sure you'd be you'd like to see this." And he said, uh, "So I, I thought, well, I don't know about that, you know, but uh, okay." And his friend was excited about it. He said, 
We sat down on the sofa, he switched it on, and the next thing I knew was the credits at the end. And he said, well, I really didn't want to see that. I'd better go to Thailand. So I thought, well, well done him. But he saw that he just, something said, no, not good. This is really going to make you lose everything that's important, so switch off now. Uh, but he had the, the kind of uh, paramita and wisdom to say, I didn't really want to see that, did I? <laughs> and then he booked a ticket to Thailand. So, uh, so that uh, the kind of response, uh, we can't just turn off that self-preservative habit. But at least we can see it going on, like, I really want to get out of here, I really want to switch off, I don't want to feel that, I don't want to know that's true. Okay, I hear that, I feel that. So uh, let's acknowledge that and be aware of it, but don't go along with what it's telling me to do. <laughs> or if you find yourself pulled along to say, this is an avoidance tactic. <laughs> I know what this is, this is really stupid, and I know where it's going to go, but I don't seem to be stopping it. <sighs> uh, but at least at that time, like Ajahn Chah would say, 50 to 70% of the practice is knowing you should let go and not being able to. So just being aware of that, uh, that the, it's the sense of self, the, the uh, self-view trying to stay in charge, that's what's happening. To, to know it, to be able to name it, and to um, be fu as fully aware of that as possible, then it, that's what helps it lose its power. And you, know, you can't just wipe it out, but you can know, oh, I know what you, like, 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 uh, the nun Vajira thing. I know you, Mara. <laughs> don't think I don't know you. I know you. I know what this is. This is um, this is that uh, self-preservative tactic. Okay. And then that um, that very awareness, that very knowing, is what helps to remove the causes for that. It, it takes away its strength, slowly but surely. Okay, that's enough for today. We've got the evening puja at uh, seven thirty. So.